Joey Votto ahead of Albert Pujols? Paul Goldschmidt ahead of Edwin Encarnacion? We'll ask USA Today's senior fantasy editor Steve Gardner about those evaluations and much more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a foul. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 22nd, my daughter Olivia's birthday and show number six of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And in addition to USA Today's senior fantasy editor, Steve Gardner, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols, our American League analyst, columnist Jock Thompson. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Oakland shortstop prospect Addison Russell. Our HQ Alternatives commentator is Matt Beagle, talking about how to energize your league and get new owners by simplifying and in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about the challenge of projecting playing time at this time of the year. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The games have started. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, the Red Sox got the 2013 season started on Thursday with a game against the kids from Northeastern University. There are four charity games on Friday, then the full slate of games with all 30 major league clubs starting on Saturday. And in the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League and leading off the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. And with the game starting this week, we're going to start getting an idea about some of those position battles we've been talking about up until now and an interesting situation developing with the uh, Milwaukee Brewers where Corey Hart and now Matt Gamble have gone onto the disabled list with knee injuries. The team has brought first baseman Sean Halton up to their major league camp from minor league camp. Uh, what's the story going on here with Milwaukee, Nick? Well, you know, the, the guy they're really going to look at hard and the guy that's going to get everyone excited is Hunter Morris, who had 28 homers and a 563 slugging at double-A last year. It, it looks as though Hunter Morris, if you look at his MLEs, they're, they're really pretty strong. But uh, he does have a very aggressive approach. It does have a, a fairly poor batting eye. Uh, could be problematic in terms of B.A. As with all prospects who are getting their first taste of the majors, we have no idea what's going to happen with, with Hunter Morris. If he starts off well in spring training, he's got a uh, good shot at winning that job. If he falters at spring training, goes 0 for 10 and strikes out five times in his first, you know, first couple of games, uh, probably somebody else will look at the job. A guy, a dark horse that I kind of like is Alex Gonzalez, who's played shortstop all his life, 
but 14 years of major league experience. We're talking about a short window here of about about a month when they need some help. Alex Gonzalez might slide over and, and become a first baseman. Which could uh, help him secure a spot on the roster as a utility-type guy. Uh, the Brewers are also working out Taylor Green, a third baseman at first. And remember Bobby Crosby from the Oakland Athletics back in the day. He's also uh, allegedly in the mix, according to the Milwaukee Papers. Uh, and as you said, it's kind of a short-term issue anyways because Hart, at least, is supposed to be back in May from his uh, knee injury stint. Uh, right. And all, the other thing is that, that you know there, there's still some first basemen out there in the waiver wire, and I'm sure they're taking a look, and it'll depend on how things go the first couple of weeks in training. Over in uh, St. Louis, we talked about Matt Carpenter, maybe a guy with a good bat and no place to play. Now they're working him out at second. Yeah, Matt Carpenter's going to get a look at second base, and there's a place that, that he could get actually more playing time than uh, he's going to get as a, as a kind of a super utility guy playing all over, the, all over the infield. What Matt Carpenter has not done is he hasn't played much second base. He doesn't know the subtleties of double plays, you know, how to read the shortstop, those kinds of things that, that he's going to have to learn. But uh, there certainly is a chance that Matt Carpenter could wind up at second base. And if he does, uh, we're talking about a pretty good bat at second base. Here's a guy that uh, uh, projected 242 at-bats, five homers, 264 B.A., uh, you know, if if he got more playing time than that, uh, he could put up some some nice numbers. Yeah, it looks like double digit homers if he gets four hundred, four hundred fifty at bats, which wouldn't be bad. You know, I was looking at Matt Carpenter, and he has some really weird platoon splits. He draws walks against right-handed pitching, but not against left-handers. He hits home runs versus left-handers, but not against right-handers. And yet, his OPS is better versus right-handers than left-handers. Right, it's real strange, isn't it, when you, when you take a look at those splits with Matt with Matt Carpenter. And then you've got, uh, on the other hand, and he could wind up in a platoon at second base because he hits right-handers pretty well in terms of B.A. But uh, the other guy you've got is Dennis Descalso, who's also a... Uh, uh, a left-handed hitter, uh, Descalso does. Descalso has some interesting reverse platoon splits, so uh, it it could be interesting right. to see how they sort everything out. That's right, Daniel Descalso uh, and Matt Carpenter, a possible platoon there. Over in Pittsburgh, uh, outfielder Travis Snyder had an up-and-down year. He's had an up-and-down career, really. Uh, flashed some signs of power in the Toronto uh, big league team, and especially at Las Vegas, their AAA team. And then when he gets to the majors, it doesn't all come together for him so much. Traded to Pittsburgh, and now it looks like he's got at least uh, a fairly solid hold on an outfield position there. It does indeed. It looks like, it looks like Travis Snyder could get a, a, a full season of at-bats. Uh, if he plays well for for Pittsburgh in the outfield, the thing to remember about Travis Snyder: here's a guy that two years ago, uh, in uh, had 298 at bats, hit 14 homers, uh, 255 batting average, but a, a 282 xba. Looked like then, like uh, all right, here's a guy who's going to come on pretty fast. And then in the last couple of years, that power has just uh, inexplicably disappeared, down from 153 px to 94 px last year. His ground ball rate is up. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on with Travis Snyder. But at 25, you can't dismiss a guy who's shown that kind of power. I mean, there could be various reasons, I think, for the, uh, for the power drop. But you certainly don't, don't want to dismiss a guy who's getting his first full-time shot, and it's that kind of power in his past record. BaseballHQ.com is projecting uh, Snyder to have about 470 at-bats in the coming year with 11 homers, uh, 65 RBIs, 8 bags, and a 260 batting average, 65 runs scored. That's a 12 or $13 player, and uh, gosh, I don't know that I'd be real aggressive about going over that. Right, I, I agree. I don't think you want to be very aggressive about going over that amount for Travis Snyder. But he's a guy that uh, that might, might and, and you know, given what he did last year, you, you have to worry about his upside. But... Uh, he still may have some upside that we're not seeing. And if he falls to you at five bucks or in the twenty 
second round or something like that could be well worth a gamble because uh, especially in a shallow leagues uh, outfielders are the kinds of guys you can drop relatively quickly uh now let's talk about a couple of starting pitchers, and we're all about upside uh, when we're looking at these guys. And back to St. Louis, Trevor Rosenthal looked really good in the bullpen last year, and now they're they're uh, thinking about making him a starter. Yeah, it looks as though Trevor as though Trevor Rosenthal could wind up with the fifth starting spot in St. Louis. And here's a guy who had a two seven eight ERA last year, a two nine four xERA, one thirty six BPV. This is a guy with a high dom rate. A uh, high ground ball rate, the kind of pitcher we really like, uh, and he may get a real shot at the rotation. 22 years old, uh, somebody in a keeper league I think you want to get on your roster now before everybody in the world discovers it. And Rosenthal has a pretty stellar record in the minor leagues, Nick, as well. If, of course, you have to translate that, but in his uh, four seasons in the minors, he's got a 9.2 strikeouts per nine innings dom rate, uh, 3.0 command ratio which is strikeouts to walks that's pretty good and he's kept the era and whip down as well again it's the minor leagues you have to allow for that but this guy has accomplished a lot in the minors and then as you said in 22 innings in the major league level as well yeah very definitely so i think somebody you certainly want to take a look at and another guy that we want to look at is in arizona patrick corbin had some starts last year and he didn't do that well but he showed some signs of growth and that's what makes him an interesting guy to look at you know, Patrick Corbin, we say to buy skills, and and Patrick Corbin's got the skills. If you look behind that, a 4.54 ERA last year, uh, nothing to write home about, but a 3.82 XERA, that catches your attention. Uh, 7.2 DOM, 2.1 control, so excellent command. A uh, pretty high, far, a 46% ground ball rate, 97 BPV. There's something there with Patrick Corbin, and it looks as though he may have the inside track on the fifth starter spot in Arizona. 23-year-old left-hander. Uh, certainly, again, someone to keep your eye on. Got a little bit unlucky on the home run per nine. He does get a lot of ground balls and relatively low level of fly balls, and yet 1.2 home runs per nine, which indicates that his home run per fly ball rate was probably unluckily high. Yeah, I would think so. 13%, and that's uh, that's a little above what we would expect. So probably some bad luck there. Uh, little tiny, tiny bit uh, of bad luck on the strand rate, little tiny bit bad luck on the hit rate. So... One of those things where everything didn't quite all come together, but it wouldn't take much for it to all come together very quickly. And another guy with a fairly stellar minor league record, including a 3.6 command ratio. We really like that command ratio, Nick. Uh, Strikeouts to walks is a very, very strong indicator of pitching talent. 3.6 strikeouts per walk is a very solid record, even in the minor leagues. It is indeed. You know, you think about it. There's a good reason for for us liking that statistic. Uh, If you if you Strike out a lot more guys than you walk. You can walk a guy and strike out the next two, and you're in good shape. And he maintained that uh, record all the way through uh, AAA. He also, in his home run per nine, has remained well under one home run per nine innings because of that ground ball tilt, which makes you think even more that perhaps that 1.2 rate last season was a bit of an anomaly. Right, very definitely. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Carlos Villanueva of the Cubs and his chance to make the Chicago Cubs rotation. His stock seems to have risen, Nick, with the news that Matt Garza might start the year on the DL. He's got lat and elbow issues. If Carlos Villanueva starts the year in the rotation, has a couple of really good starts, he might buy himself back into that uh, fourth, fifth starter spot. We know that Scott Baker is very fragile. We don't know what the Cubs are going to be able to get out of him. Scott Feldman, the guy who was handed the fourth starter spot before anything happened in camp, is not all that good. So Villanueva could find himself back in the rotation and could stay there. 
And again, one of those kind of guys who's going to fall to you at the end of the draft for a buck or the 23rd round or the reserve round and might well be worth a flyer, especially if this circumstance comes to pass, Nick, is what I'm thinking is you give him two or three starts at the start of the year, as the Cubs will. If he's terrible, you drop him, as the Cubs will. And maybe you get lucky and maybe you get three good starts and then he, he lands in the rotation and has a decent year. Very definitely. That, that certainly could happen. All right, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. And we'll have some spring training games to talk about as well. Harold Nichols writes the National League Central Division Outlooks for BaseballHQ.com and is our National League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League. And BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, columnist Jock Thompson. Jocko, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. Good to be here. Jock, with spring training games started, of course, our focus is going to turn to some very important spring training playing time battles. And I'd like to start in Texas where the battle seems to be with Josh Hamilton leaving town. There's an opening in center field, and uh, it either looks like it's going to be either Craig Gentry or the rookie Leonis Martin, and this is a guy who got mentioned in your own column. That's an interesting, it's an interesting battle in Texas in, in center field. Uh, Martin is the rookie, and, and I think they'd, they'd like to see him win the job, but, and, he, and he's had a terrific, he had a terrific uh, AAA season last year at Round Rock. Uh, it was interrupted by... I think a sprained uh, thumb ligament and uh, about a month doing a bench time stint in Texas. But uh, beyond that, he had 359, and he put up a 359, 422, 610 slash line in 231 at-bats, which uh, tells you why the Rangers are high on him. Um, but he has some pretty good competition in Gentry, and you know Ron, Ron Washington likes the vets. And he also likes defensive uh, guys who can really handle the leather out there. And with Hamilton gone, that might be a little more important than it has been in years past. And Craig Gentry, although he's not as big of an offensive threat, at least on the surface as Martin is, is definitely better with the leather. Uh, Martin's going to have to show, I think, quite a bit in spring training, both with the bat and with the glove, if he wants to earn that job. Yeah, you're right, PD. Uh, Gentry's one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball. And uh, his, his only real plus, aside from defense, is speed. He doesn't have a lot of plate skills. On the other hand, he's fast enough to, uh, to out-hit his uh, expected batting average, which was 250 last year. And he hit, uh, over the last two years, he's hit 292 in over 370, in 373 at-bats. And he's stolen 39 bases, so that's your fantasy value. But like we said, uh, there's going to be a battle in center field, and, and, that, and that defensive issue you're talking about, Reminds me a little bit of Julio Borbon, who's the third wheel in this battle. And this is a guy with a 283 career batting average in Texas, but Ron, he fell out of favor with Ron Washington because of his defense. So let's suppose Gentry does get it. You mentioned he can run. He had 18 stolen bases a couple of years ago, uh, 12 more last year. This guy with regular playing time, gosh, he could be up around 30 bags. Yeah, that's an interesting question because the year he stole 18 bases, he was a perfect 18 for 18, if you remember. Last year, he wasn't nearly as productive. He was caught seven times in the, in the 20 attempts that he had. So it would be interesting to see what he did in 400 at bats if he was, if he was still stealing at a 66% rate. I'm not sure Washington would let him run that much. Yeah, that's a good point. The other advantage he brings, though, if you happen to be playing in on-base percentage leagues, is Gentry's on-base percentage at the big league level is consistently a 350 around there, or even better last year at 367. Also makes him a pretty interesting guy for a stolen base candidate because he does get on base a lot. But you're right, he's going to have to rediscover his um, 
methods for stealing bases successfully because uh, two-thirds of the time is costing your team runs and you don't want to really go that way. Uh, at BaseballHQ.com, Bob Berger's continuing outlooks at various divisions. He looked at the American League Central last Wednesday, and he's talking about the Royals. And they have a second base job that looks like it's up for grabs between Johnny Giavatella, his second-year player, and the Canadian veteran Chris Getz. And, you know, Jock, to me this looks like a sprint between a couple of armadillos. It's not really that interesting. Who wins? Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. As we both know, Chris, Chris Getz has been around for a long time. Um, he's never gotten more than 380 at-bats in the, in the four full major league seasons that he's had. And when you look at his stats, the only thing he's really bringing is uh, is is outstanding speed. He he always steals around uh, around 20 bases a year if he's healthy. One year he got 25, and he makes good contact, but it's it's really punchless contact. His expected batting average is always around 250 or below. He reminds me a lot of Alexi Casilla, frankly. There's a lot of soft contact in there. He's a decent glove man, but at age 29, I don't know what his future is. And uh, and Giovatella, Giovatella actually had a good minor league career as a hitter. He he doesn't have a lot of pop or speed, but he hit for good contact, and he and he and uh, he had enough gap power to to, to create a batting average. Uh, his problem is he hasn't shown any of that or any patience at the major league level, and his defense isn't that great. I think you're selling him a little long on saying his defense isn't great. His defense is actually pretty poor, and Getz's defense is actually pretty good. But between the two of them, Getz has a distinct advantage there. Uh, I wonder if they've just given up on Giovatella too fast, though. He was a pretty decent hitter in the minors. Yeah, my guess is he's going to get a he's going to get a chance this spring, but this might be his last chance. The guy that I'm interested in is a guy that that we're only projecting for five percent playing time right now. But he was the Royals, uh, he was the first pick in the draft a few years ago, the, the fourth pick overall, a guy named Christian Colon. And this is a guy right now who is probably a better hitter than, uh, than, than Getz and a better defender than Giovatella. I'm thinking with a couple, three months uh, exp- uh, more time back in AAA, he could be ready in June or July. And this is a guy, if the Royals are really in win-now mode, um, if he shows just a little bit of growth, um, he could he could be valuable in the second half for fantasy owners. Yeah, but saying, you know, he's a better glove man than Giovatella and a better batter than Getz in either case is like saying, you know, she's a better ballerina than Roseanne Barr. <laughs> yeah, but at least it puts him into the mix. I mean, who knows? Does, I mean, he, yeah. Like I said, uh, uh, a little bit of a, a little bit more development and who knows what we have. I mean, you certainly can't sell him short right now with the competition he's he's up against. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I should tell you this quick story about Chris Getz. When a few years ago, I was working on a new metric for BaseballHQ.com called Hard Contact Index. And what it was was we were just tracking how often players hit the ball hard. And the guy who finished dead last in the uh, in that metric was Chris Getz of Kansas City. He basically never hits the ball hard. He reaches base every so often because he's fast and he puts the ball in play on the ground. But if Chris Getz gets this job... Boy, I, I don't know, in a mixed league, he's of no value. And in a deep uh, American League only, you might want to get after him for the bases. I don't even know if Giovatella has any value at all. Yeah, we we agree to agree on this one. Uh, it's always kind of nice when uh, when those stats uh, kind of support uh, the, the studies that you're doing. And, 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 and Getz is definitely an outmaker uh, at, at the plate. <laughs> an outmaker, yeah. Can you say anything worse about a player? Uh, Chris Olson covered the American League East uh, about a week ago or so. And uh, there's another interesting second-base battle shaping up in Toronto where 
You have Meiser is Tourist, a free agent that signed from uh, the Angels. He is a utility player there. And Emilio Bonifacio, who came over in that big trade with Miami, this is in perhaps a more interesting competition than Getz versus Giovatella. Yeah, um, I, I had the pleasure of watching his tourists in his prime out here. He's, he's 32 now, but uh, he's, a, he's, he's a terrific, versatile utility guy. He can play second, short, and third base uh, uh, better than average. In fact, very good at times. Uh, is Torres' biggest problem uh, that I saw here in, in Southern California is health. I mean, the guy has gotten 400 at-bats once in his career. Um, every time they seem to be trying to make a, a regular out of him, he he, get, he 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 all of a sudden winds up on the DL. His offense used to be a lot better. His 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 biggest contribution there is contact. Um, his expected batting average, though, over the last three years has fallen. He's down now into the 260, 250 range, and it used to be you could count on him for, you know, about a 280, 290 batting average with double-digit uh, stolen bases and even a handful of home runs. I'm not so sure what you're going to get out of Meiser's tourists at age 32 right now. Yeah, another question that you're going to be facing with his tourists is on-base percentage. Uh, Bonifacio's on-base percentage has been around uh, 320 to 360 the last three or four years. But when you look at uh, Meiser's tourists, he hasn't been as successful in reaching base around 320, 330 down around there. A few years ago, he was up around 360. That might be a problem. Yeah, that's batting average related too. Because if you look at his batting average in the past for the Angels, uh, he was pretty good for a few year, years there. He hit over two eighty nine um, three out of four years there at one stretch. In the last the last three years, he's been at two fifty, two seventy six, and two fifty six. So so he's kind of headed downhill. The the interesting difference between these two, and and both of them are free agents, and both of them are versatile. Bonifacio is not as good a defender as Meiser as Tourist is, and and that may be a uh, if they're both healthy, that may be a dividing point depending on how much Toronto's new manager likes defense. I'll tell you something else I think might be going on with Toronto. They're very quietly picking up a lot of guys who play multiple positions here. They can uh, rotate as is Tourist Bonifacio. They've got Adam Lind who possibly step in at first base or DH occasionally, and they've got Jose Reyes at shortstop playing on turf again. That's maybe not the best thing for his perennially achy hamstrings. I can see his tourists getting a whole bunch of at-bats not at second base. Could even uh, you know, play some DH here and there, depending on how they treat Lind. And Bonifacio could step in and play second. He's got some time in the third. He could play the outfield uh, here and there. I wouldn't be surprised to see each of these guys get 400 at-bats and not all of them at second base. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And if that happens, PD, the guy who's going to be most valuable from a fantasy perspective is going to be Bonifacio because he's the runner of the two. He's the guy who's going to steal with 400 bats. He's the guy who's going to steal 30 to 40 bases. Uh, as tourists is running days, I mean, he's, he's going to get you 10, 12 stolen bases. Um, last year, actually, um, I'm looking at it now. He got 17, which was a bit of an outlier. In fact, it's his, it's his highest stolen base ever in only 289 at bats. But Bonifacio is, is the guy you're going to want fantasy-wise uh, if you think he's going to get 400 bats. Yeah, even if he's only going to get 275 last year because of the injury, he was restricted. He got 30 bags in 245 at bats. That's a lot of bags. And like you say, if he manages to get anywhere near 400 at bats, this could be a 30, 35, even 40 stolen base guy. Toronto's going to be an interesting team to watch. Lots of, uh, lots of experience, lots of uh, movable parts. Uh, it, it will be interesting to, to check out. 
And just a word to the wise, if you are planning on picking up Bonifacio to fill your second base slot, be aware that he only had 15 games at the position last year in Miami, 50-some games as an outfielder, so he in all likelihood won't be eligible at second as you go into draft. Uh, Jock, those are three playing times uh, battles that are, at least the battle lines are clearly drawn. We've got a kind of an interesting situation now in Boston as well with the trade of Mike Karp from Seattle to Boston for a player to be named later. This has ramifications for all kinds of guys in Boston and for Karp. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Karp isn't a star, and, and we only currently have him pro- projected at 20% playing time. And he's really kind of fighting for his baseball life at this point at age 26 in his career. But he did have that one really nice year in Seattle at Safeco in, in 2011 before those injuries last year uh, kind of killed him. He had, he had shoulder problems and a groin, which really sapped his power. Now he's in Boston and in Fenway in a good hitter's park. And, and this is a guy, when he was healthy, had a, had a, 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 a 142 power index. He hit 12 home runs and 290 at-bats. And it seems to me, if you, look at, if you look at Boston's depth chart, there's going to be some left-handed at-bats available at first base, perhaps at, at catcher, and, and in left field. Um, they don't have a lot of left-handed hitters, and the guys they do have, uh, Ryan Sweeney and, and Daniel Nava, we know what they can bring. Sweeney brings batting average. Nava brings a little bit of everything, but Carp has the better power of the three. Yeah, but the power's uh, pretty much dead pull, and uh, Fenway Park plays poorly, minus 23% for dead pull power hitters from the left side. So, I don't know, Jock, I see this guy getting limited playing time, maybe an attractive option only in deep American League-only type leagues. Now, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I de- definitely wouldn't, have, wouldn't bet the house on any of the players I mentioned, Karp, Nava, or, or Sweeney, to take over the left, the, uh, the majority of the uh, left-handed uh, at-bats against righties. Um, it's it's going to be one of those things where if one of them gets hot and runs with, with, with it, they could, they could give a, a, an enterprising fantasy owner a good six weeks to two months of, of productive time. So it's, it's definitely something to watch for if you're in a deeper league. Any chance of an outright platoon with Gomes in left? Yeah, well, I think that's what, actually what's going to happen. I think Gomes has pretty much proven he's, he's, he's definitely not a guy you want to use against righties regularly. So, like I said, the, 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 the bigot bats that are available are against right-handed pitchers in left field. But, you know, even with Ortiz at DH, I mean, he's had health issues and, and Napoli right now. I mean, who knows how healthy he's going to be at first base. Um, there could be some time there, too, but, but you're right. The big chunk of time heading into the season is definitely in left field for these left-handed hitters. And finally, uh, I know this has nothing to do with playing time. Hiroki Kuroda, left-hander in uh, New York with the Yankees, is in no danger of losing his spot. It's just a guy that you seem to find interesting. Yeah, this is a guy, I mean, if you look at his stats, and, and, and he's going to be 38, and he wasn't, he wasn't really thought of that highly, even after having a few good years with the Dodgers, primarily because... He was 37, and everybody he was going to Yankee Stadium and the and the uh, American League East, which is a very good hitters division. A lot of people downgraded him because of that, and all he did was have the best year of his career. I, I'm not. I'm looking at his stats right now: 3.30 ERA, 3.60 expected ERA, ground ball rate of 52 percent, command of of 3.3. There was nothing wrong with his year at all last year. This this guy wasn't showing any chinks in his armor at age 37. Now he's 38, and that's the only thing. That's the only thing anyone can hold against him. I mean, he's he looks like a terrific pitcher. 
Yeah, I was just looking at his uh, stats as well. His control ratio, uh, strikeouts to walks, has been around 3.3, 3.4, somewhere in that vicinity for the last four years. He's been pretty good at constraining the long ball. He's kept his walk ratio of uh, walks to per nine innings right around that 2.2 mark. Strikeouts were off a little bit, as you mentioned, last year, but not so much as it's an alarm bell going off. I don't think Hiroki Kuroda is the kind of guy you're going to make your ace, but boy, he'd make a nice number two, number three starter for a fantasy rotation, wouldn't he? Yeah, exactly. And and if uh, and if you're in a keeper league, um, the thing you got to do if he's if he's somehow in your supplemental draft or available for a song, you talk up his age. Uh, if you're looking for an ace, but you need a a, a, a stopgap for a year or two while you wait for someone like Jarrett Cole to develop or or Trevor Bauer, or whoever your, your prospect ace is, this is a guy who can really fill in a gap for the next year or two, because I, I think he's going to be valuable. All right, Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. We'll have spring training games to talk about. Thanks, PD. We'll talk then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. He covers the three Southern California teams as a team analyst, and he writes regularly about all kinds of stuff at BaseballHQ.com, the busiest man at the website. Our feature interview with Steve Gardner of USA Today is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ron Chandler. As a listener to this Baseball HQ Radio podcast, you enjoy getting the winner's edge from BaseballHQ.com's information and insight. But the podcast is just the surface. Now I invite you to dive into BaseballHQ.com and to get the complete range of upgraded news, analysis, strategy, and tools for fantasy success. With your subscription, you'll get the latest on probable pitchers, daily matchups, and depth charts, the latest gaming strategies, extensive minor league scouting, up-to-the-minute player skills analysis, online tools you can tailor to your league, and our unsurpassed fantasy baseball research. Joining the BaseballHQ.com community also includes our subscriber forums, sharing the wisdom of thousands of other serious fantasy players and without the name-calling. Plus, we've upgraded our news feed to get you the information you need faster than ever before. Find out about our new flexible subscription plans with a draft prep package or year-long access. Come dive into BaseballHQ.com today. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Pleasure now to be joined by Steve Gardner, the Senior Fantasy Editor at USA Today, usatoday.com, longtime Experts League player and organizer. Steve, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you very much, Patrick. Always a pleasure to be on with you. Well, Steve, as I said, you've been playing this game an awful long time, and you are a fixture in many of the experts' leagues, including, of course, the labor leagues that you organize. But I wonder, do you still play in any home leagues with just regular guys? Oh, yeah, I sure do. And then that's, that's how I got started in all of this. And so uh, those bonds still remain strong with, with the folks I used to work with. And, uh, yeah, I, I do an NL and an AL-only keeper league with, with a bunch of guys that we've done it for, geez, at least a decade, probably going on uh, 15 years now. Uh, are those rotisserie format type leagues? Actually, they're head-to-head leagues, head-to-head 10-team keepers. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not the super uh, high, you know, player pool, you know, delve into that uh, that that a lot of the experts leagues are, but 
yeah, there's a little bit more luck involved, and uh, I think the guys that are in the league kind of kind of like it that way. To tell you the truth. I really like the head-to-head format. I play in an American League-only league, and a few years ago we ran the leagues in parallel one year, and we, we said we'll, we'll run our league on regular rotisserie scoring, and that'll be how we determine who wins the trophy and the money. But at the same time, we ran a head-to-head league with four divisions uh, or with three divisions of four teams each and, uh, and head-to-head weekly matchups on rotisserie categories. And you know what? The head-to-head format was just way more interesting. We had pennant races. We had a wild card race. We had teams that were would have been out of it by you know mid July in, in regular rotisserie and were out of it, but who were actually if not competitive then at least involved in the races. I just like the head to head format a lot, and I wonder why it doesn't uh, catch on even more than it is. It's very popular. Yeah, it is, and I, I think it's you know for people who've played fantasy football, that's that's the easy little gateway there, and uh, it does. I think that's one of the things is. It adds a little bit more of an element of luck in there because you're just playing on a week-to-week basis, and and it's a a win or a loss, and so everything gets boiled down into that, Um, although you still use the categories and everything. I I think the the drawback is just that, uh, yeah, there's a a little bit more luck involved, and you can have the best team all year and get down to the playoff weeks, and, and one of your guys goes down or your pitcher has a bad week, and it costs you the championship, but uh but otherwise, yeah, it, it keeps everybody involved, that's for sure. Yeah, and that way art imitates life a lot more than it does in regular rotisserie where, uh, to my mind anyway, very often the uh, the race is all but decided by you know August and everybody's just sitting around watching, wondering what's going to happen and looking ahead to next year. And I think... Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but I think that also contributes to the problem that arises with dump trading and people rebuilding too soon in the year they're in because they know they're out and they want to start get a head start on the following year and then they make their dump trades and then they just stop paying attention altogether. Yeah, that that is a problem, and that's you know a lot of fantasy owners and commissioners have had to address that, and uh, you still I, I think we still see a bit of that in our head-to-head league too, though because. You know, you get four or five games out of first place, and you can see the writing on the wall kind of as you head into the uh, dog days of summer. So, you know, we still have to deal with those dump trades in in the head-to-head league as well. In our format, what we did was we said that there are eight rotisserie categories that you're competing head-to-head with, and every category you won was a game. So it was really difficult to win in all eight games in a week. You could, you could but usually it was a 6-2 or 5-3 type of split off, and they would, they would go four games each. So the standings were compressed a little more than they would be if it was winner-take-all. Yep, that's that's a good point. And uh, if you have trouble, I, I guess in your your own head-to-head leagues, that that you know just juggling the scoring, adjusting that a little bit, is one of the ways that you can you know maybe try to get it a bit more competitive. Of course, Steve, spring training is finally underway. We had pitchers and catchers last week. Uh, Boston played Northeastern University a couple of days ago. The the regular, um, the full-on spring training schedule starts Saturday. And I'm wondering, we are going to pay attention to spring training as we always do. There's a lot of playing time issues to settle. But what do you make of how we should handle the spring training statistics themselves as far as using them to predict how a player might do in the regular season once it starts? Obviously, we have to look at them because it's all we have, and we always want to analyze things. We just have to be careful not to overanalyze the spring training stats. One of the things that I look at um, happens to be stolen bases. I think those are good, a good indication of, of what a team's philosophy is 
and what an individual's uh, ability is in spring training. I thought last year Gregor Blanco was one of the guys that jumped out at me in spring training because he was running a lot, he was successful a lot, and said, oh, you know, maybe I ought to keep an eye on that guy and see what happens. Sure enough, you know, he ended up being a, a late-round draft pick if he was drafted at all, and uh, if you picked him up on the free agent wire, you got some pretty decent stats out of him. So those are the kinds of guys that I'd like to look at and, and just see you know, who the stolen base leaders are. I'm going to be very interested to see what the Toronto Blue Jays do under new manager John Gibbons because they've got Jose Reyes and Emilio Bonifacio in that lineup, a lot more speed. You know, is Gibbons going to turn those guys loose? He didn't run a whole lot when he was the manager of the Blue Jays previously, but he didn't have that kind of speed in the lineup. I mean, if, if Alex Rios is your, your fastest guy, um, you know, maybe you're, you don't have a, a ton of speed on the team. This team does, so that's, uh, that's some of the things that I'll be interested in. And also, guys that are coming back from injury. I know we're going to be easing them uh, into their lineups, uh, and, and we'll be watching them probably not get four plate appearances a game. Uh, but, guys, you know, guys like Matt Kemp, guys like Joey Votto that are, that are coming back from injuries that hampered them last season. I want to see if they're fully healthy, uh, you know, and, and then if I do see that, that'll give me a lot, little bit more confidence to draft those guys. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner of USA Today, usatoday.com. You mentioned Joey Votto, uh, Steve, and uh, you did take him, in fact, with the seventh pick in the KFFL Experts Draft, ahead of Albert Pujols, ahead of Carlos Gonzalez, ahead of Prince Fielder. Why did you choose Joey Votto? Yeah, and, and that's you're right to, to go ahead and question that pick. I, here's the thing. In, in my, my dual life at, at USA Today, I also do some, some reporting and, and, uh, with all of our preseason publications. The Cincinnati Reds happen to be one of the teams that, the, that are mine. And so in talking with Walt Jockety, asking him about, you know, how's Joey Votto doing, um, he seems to be very encouraged. The Reds seem to be very encouraged with the, with the progress he's making. So I, I had a little bit more confidence in drafting Votto there. And as for taking him over uh, Pujols and Prince Fielder, Votto's a little bit younger. Um, he's also got the element of speed, whether the, the knee will hamper him in trying to steal bases. Um, is maybe an issue, but neither of those guys are going to steal too many bases. And the fact that Votto just has an incredible on-base percentage, a, an incredible eye, and the fact that he never has an infield pop-up, uh, I mean, they had one all of last season. Um, he's just an incredible hitter, I think, is, is the only way to put it. I really like Votto. I like his ability to get on base. I think the Reds are going to be a much better offense this season with the addition of Shin Su Chu in the leadoff spot because – you know, that's frankly what they really needed last year is to get a little bit of on-base percentage out of the top of the lineup, and they will have that this year. Votto in a great hitter's park also. Um, I just think that uh, when all is said and done, the best first baseman in all of baseball this year from a fantasy standpoint is going to be Joey Votto, and uh, I think that that was the value pick for me at that point in the draft. You took Jason Hayward with the second-round pick in KFFL. A lot of... Uh experts that we read about are saying you got to be cautious about Jason Hayward. There are signs of growth. There are signs of concern. Second round seems like an aggressive uh, pick. Uh, what was your thinking when you took Jason Hayward? Yeah, that, that was too. And I just, I like his upside. And I think the fact that he did take a big step forward last season um, after the disappointment in 2011. I mean, he's only 23 years old. And at the age and experience 
where he's a bit, he's able to take, I think, another quantum leap forward. And I'm looking for a guy to build on what he had last year. You know, he was a 2020 guy last year, and the power is there. He's only going to get better in my mind. He's going to steal more bases. The Braves lineup around him is much better. And I think Jason Hayward is one of the guys that we are going to see break out as a star. I mean, he's already a pretty good player. I think we're going to see the star in Jason Hayward this season. So it was an aggressive move, and, and I think that's uh, kind of like the theme in, in that KFFL Experts draft. I was going for a lot of upside, um, which I don't necessarily do uh, in, in most of my drafts, but this one was one where I decided to go ahead and take younger players over the older players and look for upside for, uh, for a team that I think can project to be even better than, uh, than maybe most people think. You managed to snag Clayton Kershaw with your third-round pick, and this must have been a real pleasant surprise. There's a lot of uh, analysts, including me, think Clayton Kershaw is probably the best fantasy pitcher that's out there, and here he falls to you at the third-round position. A, were you surprised, and B, what made you make that choice at that time? Well, I was dumbfounded at that point that he was still available. And, yes, I, I'm with you, Patrick. I, I think he's the best pitcher on uh, the entire draft board. And as pitching slides down, I think uh, Verlander might have been taken ahead of him. Steven Strasburg is being taken ahead of him in some drafts, which I find just uh, you know hard to believe because Kershaw has, has the track record. I mean, three straight seasons, 200-plus uh, strikeouts, um, he's had a, never had an ERA over that span over three. Strasburg is great, but you know maybe just a, a little bit of an edge in, in strikeouts per nine innings. But Kershaw has the track record, has the ability, has a great pitcher's park. Um, I think Kershaw is, is the number one pitcher this season in fantasy baseball. And yeah, and finding him in the third round was uh, was like finding a, a gold nugget you weren't expecting. Uh, Steve, we've been hearing for a few years how the top pitchers have been climbing up the draft boards and getting into the $30 picks in rotisserie auction formats and how it actually makes sense because good pitchers are not as risky as we used to think and so on and so forth. But this year when I see most experts drafts, I look at the ADPs from the various sources, they suggest it just ain't so that they're falling back into the third round again. What do you think is going on with pitchers? It's mind-boggling to me uh, in some of these drafts. I can understand not wanting to take a pitcher early in the first round. But when you get to the point where if, say, you're in a a 12-team or a 15-team mixed league and you get to the turn, right there – you're exactly right. Those pitchers are a lot more consistent, and that's what everybody always says is there's a lot of risk involved with pitchers. But you look at stats like Kershaw has. Justin Verlander has been ultra-consistent. Um, I think people are willing to take uh, a, a little bit of a, a, a risk on upside with Steven Strasburg, and those three guys are going fairly early. Now, if they fall to the second and, and even to the third round like they did with Kershaw in the KFFL draft, You've got to pounce on those. I think the thing is, is that as pitchers are becoming more dominant and we see ERAs lowering and we see batting averages dropping as a, as a whole, people see that the depth of pitching seems to be greater. And so therefore you think, oh, well, the pitching depth is, is greater. I can wait a lot longer on my pitchers. To a degree that's true, but you still I think, want to get a, a solid ace-type pitcher. I think there are probably seven 
that I counted in the top tier. You want to get one of those aces in the first few rounds, maybe you know a second uh, backup ace as uh, to anchor your staff, and then you can play with the uh, with the depth in the draft later on in the in the later rounds. But yeah, I think if pitching slips too much, if if it looks like, hey, wait a minute, why are why aren't all these good pitchers still on the board? I think that's a chance for uh, for buyers to jump in and get some of that value because really, when you're drafting in a snake draft format, it's all about the value and and what you get from the spot in the draft. So uh, if you can get somebody who is going to be a top notch pitcher in uh, in rounds three through five, um, the the value is there a lot more a lot of times than going ahead and just taking a hitter because of position scarcity or, or some other reason. You know, it strikes me that over the last five to ten years, we have been seeing a situation where on most fantasy rosters it's a 14-9 split. You're only taking nine pitchers. At the same time as major league rosters are adding more pitchers and subtracting hitters. And it's getting to the point where in many leagues, especially single league format leagues, where you're drafting 90 to 95% of the available hitters, but only 60 to 65% of the available pitchers. And I'm, I'm wondering whether a lot of drafters are making a sensible choice in the whole, in this whole issue by saying, look, I can't afford to make any kind of mistake on my hitters and I can't afford to take low cheap hitters at the expense because I want to grab a Verlander or I want to grab a Kershaw because if I make a hitter mistake there's nothing left for me to take because they're all spoken for whereas if I make a mistake with uh you know a Matt Garza or a Corey Lubke or somebody like that hey you know it's a blow but there's still 35% of the pitchers are undrafted and uh, maybe I can find one that way do you think there's something to that Oh yeah, I do. I do. But um, yeah, my focus is more on the initial rounds and how pitchers are falling in those. I don't know, first eight or nine rounds or ten rounds. I mean, yeah, you need to get a solid hitting base, but a lot of those pitchers are falling out of that. And um, if you're going to build the, the bottom half of your staff, certainly it's a smart move to wait until late because you have a lot of those replacement pitchers available. Um, but uh, but yeah, to, to see some of the guys, you know, the the, the Roy Hallidays and uh, and pitchers like that who are have an, a, a long track record uh, ha- and are solid skilled guys that that aren't, you know, maybe Hallidays getting a little bit old. But you know, you think of the Jared Weavers and Matt Keynes and and Zach Granke's guys like that maybe that are still young. Um, I think those guys are are getting bypassed a little bit a uh, little bit too much. Well, following on that same idea of the pitcher-hitter split, the of course, Houston Astros have moved over from the National League to the American. It evens things out between the leagues, but it does cause uh, some issues for for American League-only and National League-only leagues. And you wrote in a recent column that that Astro league change is going to require owners and leagues to make some adjustments. And I'm wondering, what do you think the big adjustments are going to have to be? Well, I think, you know, as we're, we're talking about um, the, the player pool and, and how many players are taken, if you're in an AL-only league, for instance, you're going to have a lot more hitters coming into the player pool, so maybe you will have a little bit more depth. Um, obviously, the Astros hitters are probably the most desirable ones, but, uh, but there'll still be some guys. You know, Carlos Pena will hit you some home runs. He'll kill your batting average, but he'll still provide you home runs and RBIs. Jason Maxwell, pretty good hitter last year, a 20-home run hitter. Uh, there, there are spots on AL-only league rosters for, for guys like that. And obviously I think Jose Altuve is going to be the, the prime guy 
that people in AL-only leagues will want to look at and, and pick up. You know, second base in the American League, some pretty good guys there with uh, Pedroia and Kinsler and Cano. So uh, adding Altuve, maybe somebody that uh, you might be able to get a little bit later, um, certainly helps the, the draft pool there. On the other side, if you've had a 13-team NL-only league, which uh, AL Labor has been um, ever since I've been in it and uh, maybe from, from the get-go, uh, you have to make some adjustments because you have an entire team coming out of the pool, and that's what we've done. We've, we've cut the uh, NL Labor down to 12 teams from 13, and I think – a lot of NL-only leagues, you know, you hate to boot somebody out of the league, obviously, but if there's a chance for contraction and maybe uh, somebody's leaving the league, you might not want to fill that position and just go to go to 12 teams because there are going to be a lot fewer. And certainly if you're having 13 teams draft, it's a lot tougher to fill those rosters than if you have 12. Yeah, it'd be darn near impossible, actually. I mean, you're going to run out of hitters, basically. Uh, you also wrote about the Tout Wars decision in their mixed league, they're replacing batting average to go with on-base percentage. Uh, give us an overview of what the debate was about, and then where do you come down on it? Well, I think it's, it seems pretty simple. You, you want to think that uh, us fantasy baseball experts uh, have, a, have a handle on the way the, the game is, is changing and the, enf- and the emphasis on... Sabermetrics and and on base percentage um, in terms of evaluating players the way that major league general managers do and I think that's really what we're trying to do here we're trying to play amateur general manager and in trying to kind of mirror the playing field um, on base percentage is a much better representation of batting average or rather is a much better representation than batting average of a player's overall value and I think the idea there is just to kind of mirror those those things. Um, what you run into, though, and, and what the uh, interesting debate ended up being among the Tout Wars owners that, uh, that participated in this, is that, no, necessarily, we're not trying to duplicate value because a lot of things add up to value that, uh, that Major League GMs are, are looking for. It all adds up into one figure that, conveniently, uh, we express in wins above replacement. Uh, and the eventual uh, line of thinking, if we're trying to make everything like the real thing, you know, why don't we just do one stat and that's war? Well, we're playing a game. We want to have variety. We want to have different categories. We want to have different players be worth different things. You don't want to have everything pile up on one category and, and one type of player, you know, the home run hitter. Who hits in a lot of, uh, who drives in a lot of runs, who scores a lot of runs, who walks a lot. You don't want to put too much emphasis on one type of player. That's why we have guys like Ichiro Suzuki, who doesn't walk a whole lot, but has a very high batting average. You know, you want to reward guys that are, uh, you know, for variety's sake, those kind of one skill guys. We have stolen bases as a category, and we've always had that. You know, those guys are not necessarily the uh, Emilio Bonifacios and Everth Cabreras of the world are not necessarily that valuable in real terms, but they are in fantasy terms. And to be able to manage categories, I think, is, is really the skill part of playing fantasy baseball. And because they're not all the same and you have all these different pieces, um, I think that's where the game maybe differs a little bit from the real thing. So... I'm all for here. Here it is uh, in terms of what what I like. I'm all for experimentation, and so I think it's a, a good idea to go ahead and try and be flexible 
uh, and see how on-base percentage works in the in the uh, mixed league. And if it gets generally good reviews, if people think that it adds to the game, then let's pick it up um, and maybe expand to AL and NL-only leagues. But if it doesn't work and people find that it does place too much emphasis on one particular type of player, then we can discard it. I mean, somebody had to go from 4x4 four four to 5x5, five five, and I wrote that in the column. You know, somebody had to say, hey, let's count runs and let's count strikeouts. Um, and somebody did put it into practice, and uh, people seem to like it, and that's kind of what the standard is now. So I'm all for experimentation and flexibility, but um, if things don't work, then I'm all for saying, eh, wasn't such a good idea, let's go back. I actually ran the BaseballHQ.com custom draft guide. You can change the parameters to have whatever categories you want and ran the values and said, okay, who really gained a lot of value, who really lost a lot of value? And you know what? It isn't that great of a difference anyway. I mean, there are guys like Adam Dunn who have very low batting averages but very high on base because they walk 20% of the time. There's a guy who's going to take a huge jump forward. Carlos Pena, you mentioned, another guy who draws a lot of walks and, and his on-base percentage more than balances his poor batting average. Uh, if you change the categories. But for the most part, these guys tend to fall you know, within a dollar or two of where they would have been anyway. I think it was, in a lot of ways it was a tempest in a teapot. Well, it, it's always good to, to, to throw it out for discussion. And you know, some, some leagues might want to do that before the season starts. I mean, we still have enough time before uh, the games actually begin in earnest. Um, it might be a good thing for folks in their leagues just to say, hey, any ideas about uh, changing rules? I know nobody, nobody really likes change for the most part in terms of fantasy baseball. It's always been the way we've done it, and, and your scouting and, right. and your preparation has always been focused in one direction. You throw too many variables in there, and it makes it uh, you know, a little, little bit uh, creepy for some people. You know, they don't like that. It freaks them out. So, uh it's a good thing to talk about, though, at this point in the season, rather than after the season has already begun. Oh, definitely it is. Uh, and also, I think in keeper leagues, it's doubly tough because you have certain players on rosters that are at you know, favorable prices or in favorable draft slots. And all of a sudden, if you change to on-base percentage, the guy who has Adam Dunn for 6 bucks. He's all of a sudden a $20 player, or conversely, if you have somebody who doesn't walk a lot, Ichiro, for example, he, he falls somewhat because of his poor walk rate, and that's really unfair to those people. So if you're going to make a change in a keeper league, I think you have to phase it in over a year or two. This is uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA Today and usatoday.com. And Steve, uh, you had a column recently, a series actually, on fantasy situation by positions, talking about scarcity. So I'll ask you first, which positions are scarce this season, do you think? I think in, in some of the drafts that I've done, it seems like second base drops off fairly quickly. And, you know, I think part of that is because you do have the elite kind of performers like Robinson Cano, um, Ian Kinsler, Dustin Pedroia, guys that historically have been excellent performers, um, not only for second base, but in general. And then after those guys a lot of question marks. And the difference between getting a Dustin Pedroia in, say, maybe the third round and having to settle for a Neil Walker or a Dan Ugla or Marco Scudero or something in the eighth or ninth round is a pretty sizable difference. So I think that's one of the positions that people have looked at in drafts uh, this season already and said, huh, I need to get my second base spot filled pretty quickly. I think, on the other hand, 
it seems like shortstop is a little bit deeper than it has been. Third base seems to be a little bit deeper than it has been, um, thanks to Miguel Cabrera being uh, eligible at third base, um, uh, Hanley Ramirez being eligible at third base, and some of the young talent that's come up in the Will Middlebrooks and the Chase Headley. So I think third base has been um, somewhat scarce in the past, seems to be a little bit deeper now this season. And um, I think catcher is is a position that, depending on whether you start one or two catchers, you can say the catching uh, crop is pretty deep this year. But if you're playing in a two-catcher league, you don't want to get stuck with the second catcher that's way down in the draft because uh, it, it can be some definite slim pickings there. It's interesting to think about the whole concept of scarcity, isn't it? Because a lot of people look at it and say, a position is scarce when it has uh, X number of players at that position above a certain level, a, z- a replacement level of $1 or whatever the case might be. But maybe the smarter way to look at it, and I think the way you are looking at it, is how big is the fall-off from the first tier of the top-level guys down to the next tier and the tier after that? Because uh, there are different definitions of scarcity, but there are more important definitions of scarcity, if you follow what I mean. Right, exactly. And, and there's also category scarcity, too. I mean, there's a lot of speed out there, but in terms of what position it comes from, you know, there aren't that many middle infielders, for instance, who can provide stolen bases compared to the outfield. And if you have spots available as you're drafting and and you, you can save an outfield spot or two open for that speed guy, but if you can get somebody who, you know, maybe an Everett Cabrera or a John Segura or one of those middle infielder guys that are down the list um, to put into that middle infield spot and get speed out of that middle infield position, it gives you a lot more flexibility to get guys who can hit home runs and and score runs and and be a little bit better rounded in those outfield spots and not have to worry about getting you know your Rajai Davises in the in the later rounds or, or uh, guys like that that only give you one category, Tony Campana or somebody like that. Um, so I think the category uh, scarcity as well is something that you need to take a look at when you're drafting. You made an interesting point that there are lots of top fantasy outfielders. Uh, you just mentioned that and uh, also in your column. But really, when you look at the very top tier of fantasy outfielders, there are only three in the American League, and you might make an argument there are three in Atlanta's lineup alone. So how does the uh, American League-only owner react? Yeah, that's that's a real good point. When when you're talking about uh, scarcity in terms of league specific, it's not not all evenly spread out. And um, in my top 13, as you mentioned, I've got 10 of those guys as National Leaguers, and only you know Mike Trout is is there, uh, Josh Hamilton is there, and Jose Batista. Those are the top three AL only outfielders, um, and all of those guys really have some questions as well. If you want to want to dig down deep into uh, you know possibility of, of being top draft picks and and what you want to pay for them and and getting a return on your investment, so yeah, I, I think you've got to got to address that. And uh, if especially in keeper leagues, it makes the value of solid, uh, you know, maybe not top tier but solid second tier outfielders a lot higher um, in those AL only leagues when you're talking about keeper values for guys like Adam Jones and, and Curtis Granderson and, and guys like that. 
You also mentioned that we have three top-tier shortstops, but they all three have big question marks, whether it's injury, Jose Reyes, or performance track like Hanley Ramirez. How do you think we should view and handle shortstops when we're looking at this year's drafts? I, I think you're right. It, it, it is tough, and I think a lot of people are kind of overlooking those uh, kind of flaws in those particular guys. Um, Jose Reyes, I think, is going to be the number one shortstop out of the group, but Hanley Ramirez... Will he be able to come back? Troy Tulowitzki, the upside is certainly there if he can stay healthy for a whole season. Um, I think maybe some people are waiting on shortstops because the depth is, is pretty decent in that, uh, you know, that second-tier um, middle-round kind of thing. Um, Ian Desmond, a fine choice. You, know, you, can, you can certainly live with, with a guy like Desmond as Drupal Cabrera. Jimmy Rollins was a 2020 guy. Um, I think he's getting overlooked a lot. Um, and then there are other guys like Alexi Ramirez further on down the list. Uh, Danny Espinosa qualifies at shortstop. And then guys like Segura, Josh Rutledge, um, younger guys, Andrelton Simmons of the Braves. You could, you could hit on a lottery ticket with, with one of those guys and, and be in pretty good shape. I know it's probably not uh, the optimum way to, uh, to fill your roster and rely on young guys like that. But shortstop, to me, seems to be one if you don't get one of the top guys you can wait a while and still come up with a pretty good player. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion of the Blue Jays, Steve, was uh, either the top or the second top first baseman in uh, baseball last year, depending on how you, uh, how you value things. But he was a very, very solid uh, guy in baseball. And this year I see you've ranked Billy Butler, Adrian Gonzalez, and Paul Goldschmidt all ahead of Encarnacion. Uh, why, not, why no love for the Blue Jay? Well, I, I, I do like him, but I think everything just fell into place. For, for Encarnacion last year. I mean, obviously the playing time, I don't think that that's going to go down, but the, the home runs, the home run to fly ball ratio, everything seemed, uh, even stolen bases, you know, he, he stole double-digit stolen bases. What do you have, like 18, something like that, 13? Yeah. Um, that was, came out of nowhere, and everything just seemed to be almost too perfect for Encarnacion. I, I think he's going to end up regressing uh, a significant amount, and I think the other guys that you mentioned, um, Billy Butler for one, uh, now with first base eligibility, Encarnacion loses third base eligibility. I know it's not going to affect his stats per se, but it does affect his fantasy value, and I think that Encarnacion might be a little bit overrated um, just based on one big year that kind of came out of nowhere. So that's, that's kind of why I've been a little bit more hesitant to, uh, to rank Encarnacion as high as, as other people have. And the catchers, of course, led by Buster Posey of the Giants. He's been taken in the first round in at least two experts' drafts that I know about. Uh, what do you think about people who are drafting Buster Posey way up there in the first round? I think that's a real uh, swing for the fences kind of pick. Um, it can pay off because of the position scarcity, and you get a guy who is so much better than the 12th-ranked catcher or the 10th-ranked catcher. But the, the possibility of injury is so great. The possibility of regression for Posey is great. I, I mean, I don't know that he hits as many home runs as he hit last season again in 2013. Um, to me, taking a catcher in the first round is something I would not do, um, and I appreciate the logic that uh, a lot of pretty smart people have, have used in taking Buster Posey in the first round, but it is not something I do. And I, I think I value catchers a lot lower than a lot of other people do, just because 
you're able to find guys that can help you late, late in the draft. Um, other positions are a lot easier to fill with solid guys that you know are going to produce. And I, I take last year's FSTA league um, as an example. I waited until very late to pick up Jonathan Lucroy and Willene Rosario as catchers in uh, in the very late rounds. I think 17th or 18th round uh, is when I took Lucroy, and and after that for Rosario. Those guys play, uh, paid off pretty well. So I think that shows that you know every so often you can get good catchers late, and uh, just the risk of taking a guy like Posey early is too much for me. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA Today and usatoday.com. And, Steve, uh, every time I have somebody on, I always ask them to give us uh, some picks to click and some selections for dejection. Uh, let's start in the American League. Who's a hitter in the American League you think is going to have a surprisingly big year in 2013? Well, I, I think we touched on a little bit with Jose Reyes. I think just moving to Toronto, he's going to have an excellent opportunity to show all of his skills uh, he's not going to be asked to, to be the man like he was in New York and just get on base, which he does well, in front of those big boppers. I think he's going to score a ton of runs. I think he's going to steal a lot of bases. So um, a lot of other people uh, may not like Reyes as much as I do. I think he's the number one shortstop. And if you want to go a little further down, I think watch for Salvador Perez. Um, I talked about catchers and not like him. Perez is one of the guys that I really like in those middle rounds just because he does hit for an excellent average, and he does have some power. And he's very young for a guy who has as much major league experience as he has. Not a bad receiver. Uh, Salvador Perez, I think, is losing his sleeper status pretty pretty rapidly because every uh, tout in the world is on uh, Salvador Perez to a certain extent. Yep, I think so. And the fact that his numbers are only a half season's worth, you know, maybe for those in, uh, you know, in their home leagues, you look at those stats and say, oh, well, that's not too impressive. But uh, remember that he did miss the first half of last season with an injury and came back um, like gangbusters. Oh, did he ever. Uh, how about a National League hitter who's going to have a big year this year? Well, from, from the early rounds, I, I think Justin Upton is, is about ready to break out. And um, we can see, uh, I mentioned Jason Hayward as, as a possible superstar in waiting. Justin Upton has maybe even more natural talent than Jason Hayward has. Uh, but he hasn't just you know has seems to have underachieved for even the great seasons that he's had in Arizona last year definitely a down season i can see him bouncing back and and getting into that superstar status if you uh, maybe a lower round draft choice keep an eye on Adam Eaton of the Diamondbacks he's a guy that i really like and uh sort of uh, similar to Salvador Perez he's been a favorite uh, of a lot of other people in some of these experts drafts and he's going a little bit earlier than than maybe I thought, but a guy who has a tremendous on-base percentage in the minor leagues, over 450 for an OBP in the minor leagues, um, did a pretty good job of that in his call-up uh, late last season. He'll, uh, I think he's going to win that center field job in Arizona. He's going to get on base, he's going to lead off, and he's going to run a lot. He's going to be very valuable. Yeah, an on-base percentage is one of those skills that translates well from the minor leagues, especially the ability to control is that tri- strike zone and to take a walk. Steve, how about uh, the American League pitcher you think is going to have a big year this year? I'm bullish on John Lester. Um, he's still only 29 years old. Last year, his strikeouts per nine, in fact, the last couple of years, his strikeouts per nine has gone down, but he hasn't lost any velocity on his fastball. I think that's just an issue with location. Um, I hate to bring in some outside factors like 
getting a new manager who used to be his pitching coach. But I think in this case, you can kind of make a correlation. He had success under John Farrell when Farrell was there earlier. I think he'll have more success this season. And um, some of the the home runs, uh, I think he gave up a lot more home runs last year. I think that number is going to normalize a little bit. I look for a, a much better year from John Lester this season. You're not the first guest at Baseball HQ Radio to say so either. How about a National League pitcher you think will have a big year? Guy that I'm, I'm targeting uh, is Mike Miner of the Braves. Uh, he had a fine, you know, uh, actually had a horrible start to uh, to last season, but then sort of figured it out. The last 15 starts or so had an ERA that was just over two. Um, I know he did have a, a very fortunate average on balls in play, but I think Mike Miner, a young guy who's on the rise, I think he can be one of the uh, you know better starters and better fantasy values in the National League this season. Um, on the pitching side. Yeah, you got to like those young players who have a few seasons, a few innings, a few at-bats under their belt, don't you? Yes, yes. And a good thing, too, I also like to look at, if I'm, I'm looking for breakout pitchers, is a guy that has a bullpen that can make sure that those leads that he gets them will hold up throughout the rest of the game, and the Braves have one of the better ones in baseball. Yeah, that's certainly true, and it's overlooked, isn't it? Because if you think, why does a pitcher come, a starting pitcher come out of a game? It's usually because there's a couple of runners on base, and if your bullpen lets half of those runners score, it's going to be a three-quarters of a run on your ERA as the starter, and if they keep those runners from scoring, it's a, it's a huge, huge swing, a huge, huge difference. Uh, let's move on to guys you think are going to be overrated or going to disappoint owners in the American League, a hitter that you think is going to disappoint his owners this year. Uh, one of the guys that I've been staying away from is, is Mark Teixeira, and uh, I think his problem is one that the Yankees as a whole have, and that's just they're getting so darn old. And any of those guys can break down. We've seen, you know, A-Rod has, uh, has had problems. Jeter broke his, broke his foot last season. Um, I, I really worry about there not being enough good guys on base in front of Mark Teixeira. I mean, his value is in his power stats. Um, it's not in his batting average, which has been below 256 for the last three years. And if there aren't enough guys on base anymore in front of Teixeira, then he's not going to get those RBIs. His RBIs were down last year, even though the power was still there. I, I think we're, we're setting ourselves up for a disappointment if we're uh, relying on Teixeira to be that same kind of, of producer that he was um, even just a couple years ago. Yeah, it's always a cautionary tale to rely on a guy's name rather than what he's been doing in the last couple of years, and Teixeira is certainly a case in point. How about a National League hitter you think is going to be a disappointment? You know, it's probably no surprise to uh, Baseball HQ uh, readers and listeners. Um, Michael Young has been on the, on the downside of his career for a while, but it seems to me that in a lot of drafts, Michael Young, because he's eligible at first and third, and he's going to be you know, getting regular playing time with the Phillies, um, whereas he might have been uh, squeezed out of the picture in Texas, it doesn't make him a better hitter. Uh, you know, speaking of getting old, Michael Young is up there as well. He's, he's uh, 35 or so. Um, I, don't think, I don't think Michael Young is going to succeed in Philadelphia. I really don't. Um, and his power has just evaporated to little or nothing. Um, and he was already hitting in one of the best hitters parks in all of baseball, if not the best hitters park. So all of, uh, for some reason, it seems like Michael Young is getting drafted a lot higher than he should be and, uh, in drafts. So uh, he's one of the guys that I'm staying away from. 
Mike Schmidt disagrees with you. He says that uh, Michael Young, if he didn't play a single at-bat in Philadelphia, I read uh, earlier that uh, Michael Young would be in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, of course, when I saw that, along with a bunch of other people, we all said, which Hall of Fame are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know. It just no, no extra base power. I think that's, that's one of the things he sort of teased us with a couple years ago when, uh, when he had a little power spike. Um, that's all gone now. How about an American League pitcher you think is going to get picked uh, relatively early or relatively expensively and is not going to be worth it? I think that you Darvish is going to be a valuable fantasy pitcher this season. But it just seems to me everywhere that, that I've seen drafts, he's going in the top six or seven sometimes, and certainly top ten. And I don't know that, that I'm willing to go that far. I mean, his... People point to his lower walk rate last season. You know, he, he got his control under control over the second half of the season. Well, yeah, he sort of did, and he still has an elite strikeout rate, but his ERA was even worse in the second half than it was in the first half. So if you think he's maybe figured things out, um, yeah, maybe a year under his belt uh, in the major leagues is something that, uh, that will definitely help him. But I still think that while he will be an effective fantasy pitcher, and I'm, and I'm not saying that he will, will be a complete bust, but I think he's getting drafted way too high for a guy with, with a small track record that um, you know, has, has the ability to strike guys out but hasn't shown he can put everything else together yet in the major leagues. And finally, a National League pitcher that you think is going to disappoint his owners. This is a tough one for me, um, and a, a lot of people uh, feel like um, you know maybe Tim Lincecum is being underdrafted now and will bounce back to his original Cy Young kind of form. Um, I don't know that that is, uh, is something that's going to happen just because the fastball velocity has been dropping for several years now and the walk rate has been increasing. Um, maybe a disappointment might be Aroldis Chapman uh, because – he was wow. so dominant last year uh, in the closer's role. Moving to a starter's role, it's, it's completely different. Uh, Chris Sale was able to make that jump last year, but guys like Daniel Bard were given that same opportunity and just completely blew up. I don't think Chapman is going to, to necessarily fail miserably this year, but because he's a max effort guy and he doesn't have that third pitch, he was able to survive and be as dominant as he, as he was last year just with fastball slider, um, I, I think he needs to develop a changeup. He needs to develop an off-speed pitch to be truly effective as a starting pitcher. So um, while the skills are still there, I don't know that he's going to be as effective, maybe as a lot of people think, going into this season as a starter. And, of course, you have to worry about the innings rise and you know, will he be shut down or will his innings be curtailed late in the season when fantasy owners really need him the most. Steve, this has been great. Uh, let our listeners know where they can find your work. Sure, uh, usatoday.com. Um, you can go to uh, the fantasy baseball page, fantasy.usatoday.com, and you can find all the great stuff from, from not only me, but we also have some stuff from HQ, Baseball HQ and KFFL, all of our uh, USA Today sports media group partners. Um, so all of that expertise right there, it's a, a great place to live. And you can follow me on Twitter, too, at Steve A. Gardner. And uh, I tweet a lot now that we've got all of our magazines and uh, our new Sports Weekly Fantasy Special is coming out on Monday. So everybody uh, check that out. It's got all the latest uh, rankings and information. So uh, there, there are many different ways, but uh, always remember, uh, you can find me and my work at fantasy.usatoday.com. 
And when does the Leviathan come out? The Leviathan with the uh, AL and NL labor drafts and, and all of that comes a lot closer to opening day. Um, third Wednesday in March, so that's the 20th or something like that, uh, right before everybody mostly starts drafting. All right, Steve, uh, thanks very much for doing this. I hope we can catch up with you again at least a couple more times during the season. Patrick, I'd love it. It's always fun chatting with you. Steve Gardner is the senior fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. Steve A. Gardner at Twitter. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Ron Chandler here. I've been around fantasy baseball a long time, and I've learned that the key to success is the willingness to make bold moves. That's why I'm encouraging you to make a bold move of your own by joining us at one of our BaseballHQ.com First Pitch Forums. This year's forum theme is Bold Statements. That means you'll hear experts from BaseballHQ.com and other sites making provocative and out-of-the-box analysis about the player pool, playing time situations, players with hidden skills, the saves race, stocking your farm team, draft perspectives, and a whole lot more. More than three hours of bold statements, bold predictions, and bold strategies to help you win. We'll have forums in Chicago on February 23rd, Baltimore, D.C. area on March 1st, New York City area March 2nd, and Boston on March 3rd. Go to BaseballHQ.com and click on the First Pitch Forums link in the right column for more information and to book your spot. Act now and you'll get a 20% discount on your already low registration. Need another encouragement? I'll be kicking things off by telling you why not to draft Mike Trout. The BaseballHQ.com First Pitch Forums. See you there. And I don't want the worst umpire in the league telling me where we are in the standings. He can call me a horse manager. I'll buy that. But I don't need to be reminded of this club is in the standings. By somebody that can't do their job, that never has been able to do their job. Myself, the coaches, and the players can take only so much of this draft. That was a classic the last two games, I'm going to tell you right now. 23 years, that's the worst I ever saw. Now, when they want to talk to me personally, again, I don't give a s***. Because I got more time than all those s*** out there. But when they start talking about this ball club, don't back me up against the f***ing wall. Because if it weren't for the good umpires in the league, those other guys out there, Franklin and Perpetio, would be in the minor league. Maybe. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. Matt Beagle is on deck with the HQ Alternatives commentary. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon tells us about Oakland shortstop prospect Addison Russell. Coming into his senior year in high school, the Oakland A's Addison Russell was considered a legitimate first-round pick. But there were concerns about his conditioning, and scouts had mixed views on whether or not he'd be able to stick at shortstop. Russell worked hard during the offseason and came into his senior year in excellent shape. That hard work paid off, and he was taken 11th overall by the A's, who signed him to a $2.6 million deal last June. After just one year as a professional, that deal looks like a huge bargain. All Russell did in his debut was hit three sixty nine with a four thirty two on base percentage and a very impressive five ninety four slugging percentage. 
He had 10 doubles, 9 triples, 7 home runs, and 16 stolen bases in just 217 at-bats while playing at three different levels. Russell now profiles as a legitimate 5 tool prospect. He has plus raw power, good bat speed, above-average speed on the bases, solid range, and a strong arm. He also has decent strike zone judgment and should be able to hit for power and average. Defensively, Russell moves well at shortstop and showed good hands and good instincts in his debut. Russell will most likely start 2013 back in the Midwest League where he ended last year, but a quick start could see him at AA by the end of 2013, and he should definitely be on your radar in deep keeper leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Cole Begarapi and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Rob this week looks at 2013's top prospects at second base. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now our feature, HQ Alternatives, with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about how to energize your league and get new managers by simplifying. Want to bring some new energy and new managers into your league? The answer may surprise you. Simplify it. Yes, sometimes simple can be better. In 1982, Canon revolutionized the copier business. It seems the copier had evolved into this huge behemoth in an office that could zoom, collate, do two-sided copies, and cost thousands of dollars. By bringing that copier back to its essence, making copies, Canon could make a miniature version that simply did just that, and it revolutionized the whole copier business by offering the common person individually in their home and home office the ability to make copies quickly and easily. You didn't have the special features, but you had a great product. Think about your baseball league like that. So many times I meet people still, and they say, boy, I love baseball. I'd love to play fantasy baseball. I love fantasy football, but it just takes too much time. Design your league to make it easy for others to play, and you'll be surprised that your enjoyment will be just as high, maybe higher. Here's some tips. Keep the stakes low. Don't get into a huge cost factor to get people into your league. That's what keeps people out sometimes, especially if they're going to try it out. So for your casual friends, let them in at a low price. Use a draft rather than an auction, because that allows teams to be have the talent be a little bit more dispersed instead of being more central. Your goal the first couple of years isn't to just annihilate your, your opponents, but instead you want to set it up so it's a good, fun league for them most of the season. And similarly, no keepers. You know, each league let people have a new chance to get the best players. When you set up your league for the everyday play, make sure most all the players are active, so there's not lineup switching every day or every week. The ideal lineup may allow for DL spots or maybe one bench spot, but make sure most players are active every day so that you're not you're getting away from that daily maintenance that bogs down so many people throughout the year. Limit your transactions. Don't let people go in there and add three people each week. Instead, limit the transactions to 20 a year or two or three a month, something like that, so that people aren't running in and out of the waiver wire all the time and getting a competitive disadvantage if their schedule doesn't allow it. By limiting transactions, you make sure that people have enough time to 
take care of injured players and replace them, but aren't working in two-start pitchers every single week. Do a shallow league so everyone can kind of know the players, and there's plenty of talent on the free agent pool every week. A shallower league will allow other people to get in and learn the players, know more of the players, and therefore increase their enjoyment. Finally, do an easier format. Um, four by four is as, as deep of a roto format as I would start out with. Head-to-head -head may parallel football and gives them a chance either by category or by points. Or I still maintain points leagues are the easiest format for people to embrace, watch, and then utilize to get enjoyment out of every single game. A points format such as one point for every total base, run scored, RBI, um, one point for every strikeout. Uh, maybe an innings pitch, but I don't really like that. 15 points for a win, 7 points for a save. So when someone's watching a game, a home run is 6 points like a touchdown. right? One run, one RBI, 4 total bases. You watch your pitcher and you see him strike out someone and that you get the instant gratification of a point. Baseball HQ has great metrics for the points format. The Mayberry method. Mayberry method alone talks about playing time and the most biggest advantage you can have in a points league is racking up at bats and innings pitched because quantity often gets you points. You're getting away from the ratio categories and getting more into those players who showed stamina year in, year out. Look at those reliability factors to see how often they can generate full seasons of at bats, full seasons of innings pitched to maximize your team. With the HQ Alternative, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle is the official video blogger of Stratomatic and writes regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about the challenge of projecting playing time at this time of the year. As spring training gets into full swing, one area of major focus for most of us is getting a handle on how roles and playing time are going to shake out. It's a fun and challenging exercise to see how all the pieces are going to fit veterans, rookies, prospects, non-roster invites, nearly 2,000 players all trying to find a spot on a 25-man roster on one of the 30 teams. Needless to say, this is important for us fantasy leaguers. We need to know who is going to get the at-bats and innings. That playing time is going to drive our player projections, which is going to drive our dollar values and rankings, which is going to drive our draft day behavior playing time projections are incredibly important. That's why we're trying to figure out who is going to play second base in Oakland, what is going to happen if Brian Roberts is not healthy enough to play second base in Baltimore, yet again, who is going to get most of the save ops in Detroit, who is going to get most of the catching at-bats in Boston, who is going to play first base in Milwaukee, what is going to happen if Ian Stewart's wrist is still bothering him, if Delman Young takes longer to heal, if Ryan Braun gets suspended, and on and on and on. There are dozens of questions. The funniest part? Many of these are the same questions we had last year. The problem is we crave answers that simply don't exist. Not now, for sure. By opening day, there will be some answers, and possibly more questions. During the season, there will be more answers, and even more questions, as players streak, slump, surprise, disappoint, and get hurt. Let's face it, there's no such thing as a finite projection for playing time. Consider these facts. 
50% of baseball's top 300 players will spend some time on the disabled list this year, thereby opening up playing time for someone else. 70% of the surprise performances this year will come from players who back into that unexpected playing time. Think about it. Mike Trout never would have put up his amazing season had Peter Borges and Albert Pujols batted over the Mendoza line last April. Which is all a long, roundabout way of saying that we need to keep our expectations flexible. Yes, we should follow the news and see who might win jobs, but we should not be building rosters with the assumption that these are fixed, finite events. On the off chance that Colton Wong wins the second base job in St. Louis, we should not treat that as a 500 at-bat certainty. On the off chance that Jerkson Profar breaks camp with Texas, we should not assume that he will eventually become a full-timer because we like his upside so much. And if Corey Hart does come back in early May, we should not be mindlessly penciling in five months of at-bats as if there is no more risk to his health. Yes, you can speculate on Billy Hamilton and Will Myers getting an early call. You can speculate on a healthy Carlos Carrasco. Speculate that Stephen Drew's first full-time gig in three years might yield 500 at-bats. Yes, you can speculate. But be ready to adjust. Have contingency plans for every high-risk situation. And there are far more of those than we'd be willing to admit. When it comes to playing time projections there is no such thing as writing anything in ink. Everything is in pencil. Everything. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about the 2013 anti-market first round. A really interesting look at a counterintuitive first round list. You can get Ron's Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also brings his Master Notes here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 6 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with USA Today Senior Fantasy Editor Steve Gardner. You know, I forgot to ask a Senior Fantasy Editor if he likes Game of Thrones. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League analyst was Rob Gordon. Matt Beagle was our HQ Alternative Commentator. And our Master Notes Commentator was BaseballHQ.com Publisher Ron Chandler. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Bob Berger has a research piece coming up Tuesday about projecting saves. Ray Murphy looks for this year's Edwin Encarnacion in his speculator column. Josh Paley looks at a case study on choosing your keepers. And Bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis has his list of 2013 sleeper relievers. Plus we have all our regular features on playing time, our buyer's guides, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. Part 2 of my research article on pitcher positive outcomes is on the BaseballHQ.com website right now. And of course, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember to check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. My own Twitter feed is at Patrick Davitt. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. Thanks again for listening. 
We'll be back again next week with former Tout Wars champion and MLB.com correspondent Fred Zinke on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.